I thought you'd be pleased. Yeah. I didn't have anything to do with it, but it's good news at one level. I, though, having said I didn't have anything to do with it, I have noticed a pattern that I felt I just had to share with you this morning, which is, you see, I worked in New England for about 10 years. I always say 10 years. My wife says nine, but actually it was nine and two months or something like that, but I round up, so 10 years. And uh, I was there. When, when we arrived there, there was this little thing called the Curse of the Babe. You may have heard of it. And a few years later, they won the World Series, and now I'm in Chicago. And what do you know? <laughs> there must be some connection here. Maybe I should be sort of marketed out to major sports franchises to <laughs> go live there for a little bit or pray for them or something. Well, there we go. Romans 12, 1 to 8. How do you know God's will? There's a young Chinese couple who came to see me in uh, my office. They um, emailed me a question that they had, which was, how do you know God's will? I'd uh, noticed them sitting in the back of the church for a while. They'd been attending and... uh, I thought that uh, perhaps they were coming to ask me about whether it was God's will for them to get married, you see. But as they came into my office and sat down and broached the question, how you know uh, God's will, the uh, story they told me was a little bit not what I had expected. So one Sunday, as they were thinking about the things of God, they came from a Buddhist-slash-atheistic background, and yet they would come to church, and they'd become gradually more and more persuaded that the Bible was true, that Jesus was the and the only way to God. And so they came to church, and then after church, they went out to a Chinese restaurant. And they had the meal together, and they discussed how now they were cognitively in agreement with the biblical view of of Jesus and God, but they weren't sure whether they could actually make the personal commitment. And so they decided to try that true and tested method of discerning God's guidance. They broached the fortune cookies. They opened them at the same time and each read out the message and lo and behold, it was exactly the same message. I forget precisely the words, but it was along the lines of, do not be frightened to commit to that which you know is true. And so they came to my office, wanting to know whether this was God's will. What would you have said? I asked them to tell me what they believed about God and Jesus and the Bible, and they replied in, frankly, a very orthodox fashion. They clearly were intellectually persuaded that Jesus was God. And so with both hands firmly on the Bible, I looked at them and said, I think God is telling you to follow Jesus. 
And I told them of a story of a very famous Christian leader from a long, long time ago who had had a similar, if slightly more erudite, experience. He had been walking in his garden, thinking about whether to commit to God. And he had heard over the wall of his garden the voice of a child playing a game, saying, Tole lege, tole lege, take read. And he'd gone back into his house, opened the Bible, the book of Romans, the place where it says, not in wantonness or drunkenness, but in holiness, commit your life to God. And Augustine had become a Christian. I looked at them and said, if it's good enough for Augustine, it's good enough for me. Two months later, I baptized them. And they're still following Jesus today. How do you know God's will for your life? Some uh, Christians have very strict rules about discerning God's will. Others make it so vague and super spiritual that you can make almost anything that you happen to be feeling at that moment God's will. Pastors can get into all sorts of trouble about this, you know. One friend of mine, as he was preparing to preach one Sunday, had someone come up to him at the back of the church who was a visitor there that Sunday and said, Pastor, God has told me that I am to preach this Sunday. (laughs) To to which my friend, who's uh, very quick-witted, replied, Well, God has not told me that you are to preach this Sunday. And that was that. How can you know God's will for your life. Paul says it is by the mercies, verses 1 and 2, and by the grace, verse 3. Mercies and grace. First, mercies. Now look down with me then at those two opening verses in our passage, verses 1 and 2. And as uh, you look there, you'll be able to see that the mercies of God are intended to influence what we do with our bodies. Present your bodies, verse 1. And what we think with our minds. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, verse 2. What are these mercies? Well, really, they're Paul's way of summarizing what he's been teaching so far throughout the book of Romans. You see, there's a person in the congregation who comes up to Paul and says, Paul, all this doctrine, all this teaching you've been explaining to us is very complicated. Can you please give us a one-word summary of the whole message? And Paul says, you know, I can do that for you. Here it is. Mercies. The mercies of God. That is his summary of the book so far, perhaps particularly of chapter 9 to 11, where in verse 15 he talks about God's mercy and compassion, the mercies. This has been the summary of the teaching of the Bible all the way from the Old Testament. David recognized this when he prayed that he would not be judged by people but would fall into God's hand because God's mercy is great. Well, Hosea predicted in the new covenant 
there would be a special emphasis upon mercy. God would say, I will betroth you, I will marry you, I will wed you, my people, and in righteousness and in justice and in mercy we'll be joined together. Mercy. How we need that summary of Christianity today. People think that Christianity is about harshness, about anger, about judgmentalism. Paul says it is mercy, the mercies of God. He has built an altar of praise and glory to God based on these mercies. He ended chapter 11 with this exalted, thrilling altar of glory to God. And now he says, in view of these mercies, you Christian, will you put your body on that altar as a living sacrifice, verse 1. It's like a husband who takes back his wayward wife and reconciles to her in all the ways that are appropriate. And we who are taken back by God's mercies are to give ourselves to Him in ongoing commitment to our bodies, our hands, eyes, feet, ourselves, a living sacrifice given to God in committed sacrificial service as a lifestyle. And again, how we need this word. People think that being a Christian means that you can Leave your body here in church and then outside you can do with your body what you, whatever you want. That Christianity is just about feelings or sentimentality or some sort of vague spiritual thing, but it's not physical. And Paul says, no, it affects how we live with our bodies. And in fact, this body worship is our spiritual worship, he says. Spiritual or logos-shaped or word-shaped or biblically formed. That is, it is our true biblical worship, this personal body commitment of ourselves. So we give our bodies to God as biblical worship. And then also in view of these mercies, Paul urges us to have our minds, verse 2, transformed. He says, so that by the renewal of your mind, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Your minds. And again, how we need this emphasis today. People think that in order to be a truly committed Christian, you have to leave your brain outside in the car park with your car. You come to church, and if you're really to believe all this stuff, you have to have a prefrontal lobotomy. Who believes this anymore? Surely this is absolute nonsense. That's what they're saying. 
and how false it is. The problem with our modern world is not that it is thinking too much. The problem with our modern world is that it is thinking too little. I mean, have you not been watching the political debate? Does that strike you as high-minded, intellectual, cognitively sophisticated discourse? Are we Christians the ones who have a mind? And frankly, the rest of the world is losing its mind. Our mind is increasingly to be transformed by the renewal of God's work in our lives so that increasingly we think not like society around us with its crazy patterns of thinking whereby materialistically, what's the phrase? He who dies with the most toys wins. Does that make any sense? I mean, you're still dead. And what sense have you won? Oh, as a Christian, though, we have a mind renewed so that we can begin to assess value and significance, not by the moment of this age, but by the eternity of the age to come. And so we begin to think because of these mercies of God and in view of these mercies. And as we do so, he says, second half of verse 2, we are now knowing, discerning, we're developing an intuition, an instinct, a set of um, tastes that we can appreciate. We can see that God's will is now perfect. We can see that, that it is acceptable. That is, it is pleasant to us. We start to regain our minds. Now, there are all sorts of slightly strange ways that Christians have tried to discern God's will. You probably know the old story of the person who was confused about what God wanted him to do and so decided that he would leave his Bible by the open window. And as the wind came through, it flooded the pages of the Bible to a verse and he took out his finger and stuck it at the right place and it said, go to Nineveh. And being aware that Nineveh is modern-day Iraq and deciding that was not particularly a fun place to go for a summer vacation, he thought he'd try again. And this time the pages fluttered open to the verse that says, Go and do thou likewise. Frustrated, he tried once more, and it said, Whatever you do, do it once. Is Knowing, testing, approving God's will about a puzzle that you have to figure out, or is it about a character, your body, your mind, your character, that needs to be reshaped so that you can see that God's will for you is perfect and good and pleasant? What Paul's saying is about character. You start by viewing the mercies of God. You begin to realize that you have a secure attachment to God. 
Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are his child. He will never abandon you. You are his. He gave his precious blood for you. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. You are his. You are his. You are his. You are secure, Christian. View those mercies of God now. In the view of those mercies, well, now you can take the risk of commitment. So you commit yourself to God. And you begin to grow. You begin to have your mind increasingly transformed as you read the Bible, as you pray. You begin to have your mind reshaped to think, not in the crazy way that, that whatever reality television is telling us is reality. And it's not reality. But start to think in significant Ways You read the Bible, you read Augustine, you read Calvin, you read Luther, you read some of the great contemporary Christian thinkers, you, you read Plantinger or Waterstorff, your philosopher, you, you read scientists who've understood the universe in a way that is far more sophisticated than the atheistic scientific ways of getting into it without getting into crazy, idiotic forms of culture wars. Your mind begins to be reshaped as the mind of Christ and so you begin to be able to test and discern the will of God by the mercies of God but there is one more aspect here and it is by the grace look down with me at verses 3 to 8 by the grace for by the grace given me I say to every one of you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you so by the grace of God We are to look at ourselves with the measure of faith, verse 3, and then we're to serve others, verses 4 to 8, in a way that is affected by this grace too. So as the mercies of God impact what we do with our bodies and how we think with our minds, so now the grace of God impacts how we look at ourselves, verse 3, and how we serve others, verses 4 to 8. And what is this grace? Well, the mercies of God is one summary of Romans 1 to 11, and the grace of God is another summary, but this time from a different angle. Paul introduced uh, Romans as the gospel of grace and peace, Romans 1 verse 7. It is, he said, the free gift by grace, Romans 5 verse 15. It is by grace then no longer by works, Romans 11 verse 6. So grace, grace is not a vague spiritual ether. Grace in the Bible is not, oh, I'm feeling a little bit tired right now, I just need a little bit more grace. Grace is not, and of course we at home will sometimes say before meals that we should say grace, but grace is not a prayer. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It is a gift whose content is Jesus' blood. That's grace. And so that affects how we look at ourselves and how we serve others. We now look at ourselves with what Paul calls sober judgment or what we could call a gospel assessment. For now, we look at ourselves according to the measure of faith God 
has assigned. So that measure of faith, what does that mean? It means that we look at ourselves as people who are saved by grace only through faith alone. That's the measure we use to assess ourselves, a gospel assessment, a gospel identity. So now the way we look at ourselves is neither too negative nor too arrogant. No one should look at themselves more highly than they ought. So you, Christian, are more loved than you could possibly imagine. Jesus has poured out his blood for you. He has an eternal love for you. You are a child of God, and that is all a gift, grace. Your value is set at the price of God's free gift of Christ's priceless blood. At the same time, though, and by the same token that you are saved by nothing but grace through faith, you also have nothing to be proud about in yourself. So you look at yourself differently. You have a new sense of your identity. Uniquely among all the peoples of the world, the Christian then has this stable view of themselves. You know, if you're not a Christian, you, you, you're constantly trying to persuade yourself that you're better than you really are. You know, you look in the mirror and you think, you say, you know, every day I'm getting better in every way. I look at the mirror and say, what on earth happened to me? <laughs> I was going back through some pictures of my high school, my grandfather went to the same high school my father both my brothers and they have online some historical pictures and I saw one picture of my father when he was 15 I looked at him he looked so young and vigorous and handsome and I thought what on earth happened to him and then I found a picture of me at 15 I thought what on earth happened to me but outside of Christ you're constantly trying to pretend that life is getting better in every possible way. How are you doing? I'm awesome. Really? I'm living the dream. Really? But a Christian knows full well who he or she is. At the same time, he or she knows full well who God is and how he loves him or her nonetheless and therefore has a stable gospel identity and of course that means that when someone criticizes you it doesn't rock your world you can be like Charles Simeon you know what Charles Simeon used to say when he was criticized if only they knew me better they would have far worse things to say You are loved with an eternal love even though you are a sinner and therefore you have security. At the same time, you do not think of yourself too highly either. You don't go around thinking they've got it wrong and I've got it right because I'm right. No, you know you're not right. Your righteousness is a righteousness from God. You, you, you don't have that arrogant, picky, judgmentalistic approach to other people.
You're not trying to cut everyone down to your Procrustean bed standard of what life should be like. If you meet a really godly person, one of the things you will notice is they have this poise. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Changes how we look at ourselves. It also changes how we serve others. Of course, this is the great secret to church growth in a biblical sense. Verse 4, we are members of one body. Different functions, community and diversity. And that means we are dynamically compatible, not counterproductively competitive. Insecure people are always wanting to do what someone else is doing. They're always wanting someone else's gift. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. When you have this measure of faith, you assess by a gospel standard, the grace, the charis, has given you the charismata, the grace gift. You become content to excel at your own gift. And then verse 5, we're members one another. That is, we belong to each other. So we are intimately connected, not distantly separated. Our connection at Cottage Church is not by the connection of, you know, family tree. You know, my aunt married, have you, have you figured this out about Cottage Church, how everyone is related? I mean, not everyone, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of relationships here. Be careful what you say to whom, it's probably someone's cousin, you know. That's great. Shows that people like the church, they like the city. But we are connected through Christ. Intimately connected. The the idea that if you're going to be really biblical in church, then you've got to be prim and proper and distant. It's entirely unbiblical. No, we belong to each other. We belong to each other. All the barriers are down. And so the grace gifts, the charismata that come from the charis grace begin to be exercised. Uh, Verse 6, prophecy in proportion to our faith. Well, that means that any word ministry, whether it's the preaching that I'm doing now or whether it's a Bible study or an adult community or it's a special spiritual insight from God, any word ministry is to be focused on what he calls here the proportion of faith or the analogy of faith, which is really, I think, the same as the measure of faith In verse 3, but now it's not about our identity, but about our ministry. So prophecy of any kind is to be focused on the gospel of grace. It's by grace, through faith, only what Paul has explained in chapters 1 to 11 of Romans. This balanced proportion or analogy of faith. That's, That's how we're to do it. Point people to Christ, not to ourselves. 
And then verse 7, if service, then serve. If that's your gift, then serve. If, if teaching, well then teach. If exhortation, uh, verse 8, exhortation or encouragement, then encourage. If, if giving in a special way financially, God has given you a lot of resources and he's given you a lot of heart to be able to disseminate those resources, then do it with generosity. If, if leading, then with zeal. If you're the kind of person who's always got people following you, don't, don't go, oh, I'm just tired of people following me. I just want some time alone. No, do it with zeal. That is energy and personal commitment to the cause. If having mercy, that is being kind, do it cheerfully. So those who have the gift of mercy can easily get into the trap of beginning to do it begrudgingly, always having to be kind and no one notices. But instead, you are to do it happily or cheerfully. For Why? God had mercy on you. And so, you know, with all these gifts, of course, the temptation to receiving a gift is not to use it. The temptation, as Jesus explained, is to bury the talent. Instead of to invest the talent. Or as Paul said to Timothy, you've got this gift. Now you've got to fan it into flame. You've got to make it bigger and better. You've got to work at it. if, If you're serving, then serve. If teaching, then teaching. If prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. You say, look, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I know God has given me the gift of encouragement. I get tired of encouraging people. You know, there are certain people out there who just need encouraging morning, noon, and night. And I've had enough. I'm so busy. You know, time is not an excuse. You know, there's this uh, saying that Kenyans have. They say, Westerners have watches. Kenyans have time. It's not about time. It's about priorities. If teaching, then teach. If serving, then serving. And this isn't an exhaustive list of all the, list of all the gifts. It's just an example of some of the ways that God's grace in its manifold bounty has been spread into the church. One man was uh, listening to all this uh, teaching about serving and suddenly as the pastor of the small group where he was was explaining this, the man put up his hand and said, look, pastor, I think all you're saying is Basin theology, B-A-S-I-N, basin theology. The pastor had no idea what he was talking about, so I asked him to explain. What do you mean by that? And he said, well, basin, B-A-S-I-N, theology. What I mean is this, there's a choice. You're either like Pilate and you're washing your hands of responsibility in that basin. It's not my job, it's someone else's job. I I don't care whether I've been gifted, I'm tired. I I, I see the problem, but I'm not the solution. You you wash your hands of the responsibility. Or you're like Christ in that moment when he washed the disciples' feet in that basin. Basin theology. If serving, then serve. If teaching, then teach. If encouraging, then encourage. So you say, well, okay, but how do you know God's will for your life? 
But it starts with viewing the mercies and grace of God, being secure that you are loved so you can step out and take risks. You can make the commitment. You can have the hard conversation. Do you know what I mean by the hard conversation? You can go up to a friend of yours or a Christian counselor or a pastor, someone you trust, and you can, now you're secure. You can look them in the face and you can speak the hardest word in the human language, which is help. And then you can begin to grow. Your mind starts to be transformed by the renewing of God's word. You spend time in the Bible. You spend time in prayer. You you begin to reflect upon the truth of God. And your mind starts to think differently. And now you realize that by the mercies and by the grace, you have the grace gifts. And you start to exercise those gifts. You start to use them in proportion to faith. That is, not overly confident. Look at me, I've got this gift. Nor overly negative. Will someone please encourage me? Because I'm doing this and no one's noticing. You, you, You just have a poise. And your character begins to be shaped after the character of Christ. And your mind begins to be shaped after the mind of Christ. And little by little, bit by bit, you are knowing and doing the will of God.